Strategy and Insider, exploring future trends and their impacts. Hello, everyone. This is the 19th episode of our Strategy and Insider podcast, where we deep dive into the future of healthcare. Thank you for tuning in today. I'm Thomas. I'm a partner at Strategy and, and the host of this podcast. In our last episode, our topic was around drug R&D and future medical innovation. And today, our conversation will revolve around the strategy and business development for public health and pharma. So today, I have the pleasure of welcoming Elena Bonfignoli from Microsoft. And I have to say, I'm very proud and honored that she agreed actually to join me in this podcast. Today, we're connecting virtually due to very busy schedules, as we can imagine, um, with me sitting in today, very sunny Frankfurt. And Elena, hopefully, same is true for you in Brussels, but you will tell us, I guess, in a second. For now, I'm, however, happy to first introduce her and her fascinating background. Elena is the general manager and global business leader for healthcare, and at the same time, the global leader for pharma life sciences at Microsoft. In that role, she's responsible for driving the firm's strategy, business development, partnerships, positioning across public health, social services, providers, payers, and the alike throughout the globe. Elena actually is spearheading key initiatives such as Health 4.0 and Health Digital Transformation and mobilized also a core group of industry stakeholders to start the so-called European Cloud in Health Advisory Council, which is a vendor-neutral C-level forum that aims to foster cloud-first innovation in the healthcare sector. I know Elena is very driven by sustainability of healthcare systems through IT innovation, but also patient rights and empowering and upskilling people as well as female leadership. And around the latter, she's actually the co-founder and a board member of Women in Leadership uh, Network, which is a joint effort between Microsoft, INSEAD and the Women Forum. And she also recently set up the Women Talent Pool that aims to nurture emerging female leaders. And I'm sure we'll come to that in a second. Before joining Microsoft in 2003, Elena worked for CSR Europe, which is a European business network for corporate sustainability and responsibility as their director of corporate programs. Initially, Elena started her career working as a researcher for the Italian government and uh, the University of Bologna in the field of fiscal economic reform. Elena holds a degree in economics from the University of Modena, a master's degree in European studies from the College of Europe in Brux, and a diploma from the University of Montpellier. So all in all, this is, of course, very striking and very successful as a career. And I'm very impressed and can't wait, actually, to dive deeper into Elena's background and her vision of the future of healthcare. So with that said, very warm welcome, Elena. I'm very much looking forward to our conversation upcoming. Thank you very much, Thomas. I'm delighted to be here with you all calling in from cloudy Brussels. And actually, I'm delighted also that we do this virtually so that we contribute to reducing the carbon footprint of the world. Very, very much agreed. Yeah. And for that reason, it actually is good that we do that remotely and uh, technology. And here we are already spot on, uh, does allow for this these days much better than the past. But before 
going there, probably let's start with one very important topic I know that you think a lot about, and that is not only relevant for the healthcare sector, but every other industry as well. I'm talking about your engagement to empower women and also foster female leadership. And I do believe this is quite impressive what you are not only thinking about, but also doing. And in my opinion, this is something uh, of very importance also for us as a consulting industry uh, where I do come from. In your perspective, what are the biggest challenges that you personally are tackling with your initiatives, but also are there already some achievements that, um, let's say, you can already be proud of? Yes, thank you. Thanks for starting there, because in a way, the work that I have uh, spearheaded over the last 20 years when uh, I had the pleasure of being at Microsoft together with other women um, for building a network of women in, in leadership at international level, really promoting inclusion and diversity is something that goes to the very heart of the mission that we have at Microsoft. If you're thinking about it, when you have an empowering mission, so empowering others to achieve more, you really must take on also the diversity and inclusion point. And so what, what we started earlier on um, was to say, how about federating all these women that sit in a, a position of leadership and making sure that we really lead with perspective of feminine leadership. And I use this word with purpose. It's not about men and women. It's about maybe, you know, some attributes of leadership that look at things in a different way. So we launched this uh, network actually back in 2008, and it had a lot of success all across Europe. We did partnership with the US, with other um, countries as well. And what I was most proud of is that instead of taking a diversity position, instead of saying, this is why we need to be in the room, this is why we need to be in the board, this is why we need to be this and that, we started to say, this is our point of view, and really exercising that women leadership position and particularly exercising the opportunity to work with younger, high potential women and nurturing them, giving them confidence, opening up our address book, opening up the network, making sure that we went above and beyond traditional mentoring and we put them, you know, for example, in our events, we gave them a voice, an opportunity to speak about what they were doing so that they could practice just the executive presence of talking to senior leaders. So that, even in its small scale, was a reminder for me that being given an opportunity is what matters as we develop our careers. And young women need that. Just as a personal touch, unfortunately, that's also why I left my own country of birth and wanted to work abroad because I was hoping to find actually a more empowering environment, which definitely I found as I started my career in Belgium. 
And I, I like that perspective that you are sharing, and not only a point of view that um, women in leadership is important, but also leading by example and not only talking about it. Uh, and sometimes it's also smaller elements, but very effective elements that you are practicing with young leaders, joining you on the stage, joining you in forums and be there and, and get that voice that you have been talking about. So I like that perspective. Let me move towards more the ESG side of things. And I know that, for instance, gender equity, obviously, is part of the S pillar within the ESG transformation. And many societies, economies do care about that. But also the environmental dimension is another crucial area. And from your CV, I know that sustainability, but more broadly also ESG is an important aspect to you. And given that this change to a more ESG conform world needs to happen faster and more decisively than today, how do you see yourself? Are you an optimist or a pessimist when you think about our world in the context of sustainability and ESG more broadly in the next, I don't know, 10, 20, or even more years? Thanks for asking the question, Thomas. And um, by nature, uh, by DNA, uh, I think I am an optimist. And uh, even in this time of significant change, macroeconomic uh, conditions, environmental situation, and diversity as well, and inclusion opportunities, I remain an optimist. And I also believe that for all of us that work in digital, we see the power, the transformative power of digital in creating opportunities and being almost a democratizing force. And I give you two examples. If you think about the environmental element, first of all, we know that digital can accelerate the sustainability journey. And when we think about the ability of data to unify intelligence so that there is more visibility on sustainability metrics, reporting, and key levers to transform the business, to build a more sustainable IT infrastructure, to reduce environmental impact of operations, and so on. So, you know, already there, there is a, a very specific opportunity that Microsoft actually took on, um, not only with our own environmental metrics, but also as a service working with partners like PwC and others in how do we use cloud for sustainability to provide a reporting and attracting and a way to minimize environmental footprint of organizations. When you transfer that to healthcare, we know that just the ability to switch from an in-person consultation to a digital visit to a teleconsultation is not only creating the freedom and the, I would say, flexibility to do these type of visits in the way that is most suitable to very busy life, but also to make sure that we save transport and we save the carbon emissions and we save the hours of lost productivity, but also we can allow people that are in more remote regions 
to be able to access specialists. And if I just take the example of, of Italy, we have seen during COVID that some of the neurological centers that switched very early on, uh, like Besta, for example, um, to, to digital, they could see patients that before had to travel for two days and sometimes take a plane from, you know, from Sicily up to the north to go and see their specialist. And all of a sudden, the democratization was there. So all at once, you have lower carbon emissions, more productivity, less cost, you know, the same safety, more agility, and actually the inclusion, because that, you know, you, you allow everybody with a click to be able to access the care that they need. And uh, this is um, obviously a great lever to go rather via digital visits wherever possible rather than the physical travel towards a doctor to get care. But also I do believe and very interested in your perspective on that, bringing more the technology side of healthcare into healthcare that might also help us to bring solutions, digital solutions into suburban areas of countries where a physical travel for shipping drugs or shipping other uh, therapies will be even yeah, hindering them to get access to because there is no street, there is no infrastructure, there is no cold chaining possible. What's your perspective that way? I totally agree. Totally agree. And we've seen that during the, the pandemic, the um, digital really allowed to amplify the impact of the first responders that were there. And actually, the call from our CEO, Satya Nadella, was really to be those digital first responders that would help those on the front line to do what they did best. And so, you know, from being able to keep the shop floor going with remote monitoring and just one person on site, but, you know, many others that were helping remotely to virtual wards. So having just one doctor exposed to a patient, but wearing a HoloLens that allowed actually um, the right specialist to be behind the protective wall and make sure that there was all the guidance from all the specialists to bring the best care, reducing the risk of exposure, but also reducing, for example, the use of protective gear. That has been incredibly powerful from the UK to the US to Asia. And when you think about Even if I take Africa as an example, in Botswana and other parts of Africa, we have seen how having an expert clinician give training and advice to community workers was such a powerful force for faster and broader diagnostics, for example, of cervical cancer. And we know that women will not travel two or three days leaving their children behind, leaving their work behind just because they cannot afford it. And therefore, they are at risk of death for diseases that could be totally preventable. So if we can bring in digital as a democratizing factor, I'm all for it.
probably pivoting a little towards healthcare and pharma industry trends that we're currently seeing. We, I think, both agree that the historic focus, um, and still the focus is, of healthcare is on cure and care. But this is becoming increasingly broadened to include also preventative measures. When it comes to generating, analyzing, and also sharing data, that plays a big role in preventing, but also, if not possible to prevent, at least early detect diseases instead of just curing them once they already broke out. At the same time, we have one of the world's most advanced and some might argue probably also most rigorous data protection legal frames here in Europe. What is your perspective on that I think, very fine line between data protection and data usage when it comes to such a personal area as individual state of health? I love the question because, you know, at heart, I am an advocate and an advocate really starting from patient advocacy when I was in France, in Montpellier, working as a voluntary participant with Claude Pompidou with cancer patient to my work in, in CSR Europe advocating for corporate responsibility to some of the work on data save lives here at Microsoft. So, you know, for me, it's really important to balance the timeless need for security and privacy of data mm -hmm. with the unique opportunity to save lives with data. So I fully understand the requirements, also being European, the requirements of safeguarding the sensitive information of health data. And that is why it has been very inspiring to see the work that Microsoft has been doing from the beginning, both on GDPR, but also on supporting the EU data boundary and making sure that we really respect the need and the ongoing commitment mm -hmm. to European values and European digital values. And that's something where I think we, as technologists, we need to be really tuned in to the needs and to the expectations of society. And here I want to be a bit of a challenger because we often think about privacy as, you know, almost something that blocks us going forward. But what I've seen is that privacy enhancing solutions have been really the cutting edge of innovation in healthcare. So we have seen, for example, confidential computing, differential privacy. We have seen, you know, these new techniques that really minimize the risk from a zero trust perspective of how those that develop algorithm can train their model and respect and protect their IP. And at the same time, those that steward the data upon which those algorithms need to be developed and trained can retain and protect the security and privacy of the data. We have done work on privacy-enhancing solution with organizations like Beekeeper AI out of University of San Francisco, uh, with Dell and others. And, and there is a real momentum there to be explored. How do we innovate? maintaining privacy and actually enhancing privacy. 
And I like that challenge uh, because usually when we talk about data privacy, not only but also very much in healthcare, it is more around privacy solutions that are coming more from the legislation to keep uh, data privacy very ring-fenced and safe and sound. But what you're suggesting also is more privacy-enhancing solutions that still minimize the risk, but at the same time take advantage of the data set uh, that can then be explored in that safe surrounding. So I, I like that challenge. May I just use that also to jump into the European Commission's new European health data space, EHDS, that was founded or coined back in May 2022, um, which supposedly is to help the EU to achieve what they call a quantum leap forward in the way healthcare is provided to people across Europe. For Microsoft, if I got that correct, the focus of the EHDS should merrily be on interoperability, uh, privacy, as you have been alluding already, but also AI responsibility. It would be very interesting to get your perspective if you could elaborate why you think those three aspects are most important for digital healthcare in Europe. Yes, absolutely. So first of all, I think that already the vision of the European health data space is a fantastic vision and we should really all lean in and make sure that not only we envision it right, but we implement it. And without probably having it perfect at the beginning, but my hope is that we learn in an iterative way. So we are going to really learn from the way in which we start to collaborate on data and making that data space real. Now, let's talk about those attributes that you mentioned. First of all, interoperability. Interoperability actually has been top of mind, as you know, in our journey. We have learned a lot and I think we have become industry leader in making sure that whatever is built is built with an interoperable DNA, if you allow me, from yeah, a sure. perspective, <laughs> from an interoperable DNA from the early on. So we have invested to re-engineer our healthcare cloud platforms, taking fire fast healthcare interoperability resource as, as the standard at the heart of it. We have made the connectors and all the approach to make sure we would embrace all the standards that were needed. If we don't think interoperability, there is not going to be a data space because the data space supposes that we can exchange, share, collaborate. But that means that the rail tracks of that collaboration and exchange need to be built from the ground up. Can I just probe briefly into that? Yeah. On a scale from zero to 100 in healthcare, how interoperable do you think we are, let's say, in Europe? I would say that we are unfortunately below the 50% benchmark. Okay. And even being an optimist, I say this because we keep, we have actually digitized a lot, right? So that that's great. I mean, paper is not interoperable, right? So we've done a big step digitizing, but we have digitized by creating systems of records. So those systems of records have not been thought for interoperability. And so from there, the journey is, what is the interoperability layer that makes those system of records be opened up mm -hmm. and having standards that allow to become systems of engagements and systems of insights. 
And in the era of platforms where even large-scale models are and can become platforms in the era of, you know, API to connect to data, in the era of medicine that need to be, you know, formatted and tailored to uh, cohorts of patients whose data sit in pockets all around the world. If we want the reality and the promise of precision medicine to come true, we need interoperability of healthcare solutions. And we are getting there, but not yet there. And I think that mandates like, you know, um, some of the work that uh, was done in the US by the ONC, I mean, allowed to really open up some of the EHR work and uh, drive engagement and insights on top of the EHR. And um, one other element I would really be interested around is AI responsibility. What do you subsumize under AI responsibility? What does it mean to you and what does good look like in your perspective? So the first thing that is important is that if people do not trust technology, they'll not use it, right? So our belief in artificial intelligence is that It has the power to amplify the human ingenuity and to extend our capabilities. And for that, we were very fast to say that that commitment needs to include a commitment to build responsible AI. And so responsible AI, what we started is publishing our six guiding principles for responsible AI. So fairness, Mm-hmm. reliability and safety, privacy and security, inclusiveness, transparency, and accountability. And, you know, they are, they are published and they are really driven by the idea that from the code up, from the moment in which we code, we need to embed these principles. So ethics and an ethical approach needs to guide us as we put those principles into practice. And we want to continue being thought leader in scaling AI responsibility and in scaling AI responsibly, if you allow me. Yeah, you know, it's, yeah, not, yeah, yeah. it's not a play of, of words, but it's really both are incredibly, incredibly important. If you go back to my work on corporate responsibility and advocacy, you know, being able to shape policies and to listen to the expectation of society to then work with stakeholders and influence what that responsible AI looks like is foundational to our success. And talking about artificial intelligence, I would have a rather simple question um, in a way. What do you personally believe that AI can do to doctors and cannot? And what would be kind of an ideal let's say, division of labor, if I may, uh, between a human physician and his or her digital counterpart? It's interesting. And I believe that um, the framework here is, is really important because when I look at the future, the future of work, the future of creativity, the future of caring for others, I truly believe that the future depends on our ability to write software, to empower whatever process we do with artificial intelligence as a way to augment and not replace what we do 
And this is important. Why? Because there is not enough hours in a day. You know it. I know it. We lose a lot of time in tasks that could be automated and where we can really put and apply our creativity, our ingenuity, our unique abilities to do better outcomes in the hours that we work. So increasing productivity is something that the world needs and something that AI can do. And I want to give you one example from the acquisition that we have done of Nuance. You know, just making sure that voice as a unique input to the healthcare data of the world can be captured as an unstructured information, but can be captured and structured and queried has been proven as an incredible democratizing and productivity vector for the burden and the overwork and the burnout of doctors. So the ability to dictate, but also to transcribe and to standardize the conversation between a patient and a doctor has really transformed the productivity and liberated the productivity of clinicians all around the world with great feedback from patients saying the doctor is focused on me, not on the computer, and from clinicians that could see more doctors and really do what they do best, which is look for insights in the conversation. And that last part I'm especially intrigued by because if you have a patient-physician conversation automatically transcribed into an EHR record, you not only save time and make healthcare more efficient, but also you have the potential to automatically query um, into that data set to learn more about the patient, him or herself, to make better suggestions going forward, but also learn more for um, patterns uh, that are important to know uh, when you come up with the next level of innovation, be it a digital health solution or be it a physical drug solution or whatever it is. So I, I think there is a lot to be expected going forward. And by the way, all of that needs to be done with consent Absolutely. because amplifying, so basically what If you think about nuance, what, what we really do is amplifying our ability to help others, right? And starting from those that really help others, which is doctors. But we need to make sure that particularly as we think about the dark solution that really uh, with consent transcribes and structures in a queerable form, the doctor-patient consultation, you know, it's, uh, it's consent-based. And that is foundational, again. It's not what we can do with AI, but what we should do with AI. Elena, that's a perfect segue also into something else I want to discuss with you because I've recently came across a Financial Times article that has been quoting you that you are a big believer that actually data does save lives or has the potential to save lives. And obviously knowing that Microsoft is well known for its Microsoft 365 and uh, the Alike suite, but also Azure, which is your cloud service, Certainly, there is a cornerstone for enabling a more collaborative, a more efficient and more cost-effective digital healthcare system. But in that play and in that surrounding, where do you believe the power of the cloud does lie in your view when it comes to healthcare? 
So I would say the power of cloud and AI is when applied to healthcare, definitely to save lives because of various things. Data can save lives because we can apply the diagnostics capabilities of AI to query records and therefore to identify the right patients faster. Mm -hmm. But he can also save lives because, you know, as we were saying before, we can access more people with uh, digital health, people that cannot be reached so easily. But he can also save lives when you think about uh, more effective triage or more effective capabilities to match the right patients to the right clinical trials based on inclusion and exclusion criteria. So this is where, you know, I think the power of data to save life is not yet fully understood. When we think about the power, for example, of AI applied to imaging, right? 80% plus of all the hospital and health systems visit include at least one imaging exam that is related to, you know, thousands of conditions. And we spend billions in imaging in the hospital. So an image is really worth a thousand words and that image can be queried with AI to help identify anomalies, not to substitute the doctor, of course, but to alert, to be a companion for diagnostic imaging AI to address I would say a wide variety of challenges that are there in the patient journey from screening to diagnosis and interpretation to planning for a treatment to applying the right dose and to follow up. And again, you know, Microsoft and Nuance together are really addressing that challenge. And even in diagnostic, we see that with the right application of AI to imaging, we can increase the interpretation and the efficiency in the diagnostics of substantial material percentage. And I just want to also ask, oftentimes when having these type of dialogues, there is a lot of benefit obviously coming from big technology players such as Microsoft, but also Google, Amazon, Apple and others. And there is also kind of a hesitation of some of them saying, well, now big tech is taking on the next field of life, which is healthcare. You as Microsoft have in your strategy, if I get that correct, that you want to be of help to others that are active in the sector without replacing them. Yeah? But being their technology, cloud solution, AI solution servant or service provider, rather than um, kind of getting in their way of their own business model in how they're helping uh, healthcare systems. Is that true? And if so, why? Why is that your strategy? It is absolutely our strategy. Our strategy is to empower our customers and partners to be successful. And it's our mission to empower others to achieve more, not to get into their sectors and, and, and basically compete with them. First of all, why? Well, it first of all, because it's our mission. Second of all, our DNA has always been really to be partner first, to be partner driven. You know, our 
business model is not on data, is not data aware. On the contrary, our CEO has been speaking uh, about data dignity. So what is the business model to extract utility from data without having to get into advertising or marketing type of business models only. So uh, for that, we need to be sure that we work as a platform and we empower as a platform our customers, but also the last mile of innovation that is delivered by partners, Mm -hmm. ISVs, startups, companies, small and large, uh, advisory firms like yours, you know, an ecosystem of partners that really gives their best on top of what we do best, which is hyperscale, public cloud, and AI capabilities of the scale that nobody else can do. So if we each focus on our specific core capabilities, together we can make a difference. And and for example, when you think about the fragmentation of healthcare, it would be not very you know interesting to try and be the line of business last mile innovator everywhere. It's very difficult to capture. So what we believe that we're there to do is to build in the platform all the interoperability and the health specific AI capabilities that would allow small companies, but really transformational partners. If I if I think about the UK, for example, Pangea, you know that um, is applying our together with us on on top of Azure AI capabilities to discover uh, miscoded lung cancer patients, and because of that AI capabilities, we're almost three hundred times more patients that can be found compared to other other solutions. So that is where we want to be. Not competing with our partners, we'll not become a pharmacy, we'll not become a retailer, we'll not become a primary care. We are there to empower them. And just to echo, my personal perspective is working across the sector, across the players and converging the interest around the very personal patient that you want to help keep either healthy or get better soon. I think this is the way forward. We need those type of roundtable settings that obviously need to be rooted in trust and mindful togetherness. So, I mean, having you uh, as part of the podcast series, um, I really want to look into the future because um, if there is innovation happening, I do believe the epicenter to a large degree lies in technology houses like yourself. And without revealing, obviously, your competitive advantage, could you give some hints of what innovations um, that we're going to expect, probably from Microsoft, but also more broadly, let's say in the next five to seven years or so? It's it's an interesting, a very interesting question. Um, A couple of um, insights and thoughts. Let's start with the type of data that will power the discoveries of the future. And then let's go into maybe the family of AI models that will power uh, the insights of the future. So from a data perspective, and you know, I take healthcare as an example, but healthcare and life sciences, but you can apply this to other industries as well. Multimodality of data being queried together is key Mm -hmm. to the future of healthcare. And at the moment, we've always been thinking about let's query uh, electronic medical records or let's query images impacts, let's query and and do workonomics. But 
precision health and precision medicine requires multimodality of information and platforms and technologies that can ingest this multimodal information, standardized and query it together with a very rich feedback loop. So multimodality and platforms that manage that effectively is key to the future. Mm -hmm. The second thing, when you continue from there, is really thinking about you know, the infrastructure of public cloud as an AI supercomputer, an AI fabric that is very pervasive. And so the ability to train large scale model, and when I say large scale model, you know, a billion of parameters in a distributed way, it's a category above. You have seen maybe our investment in uh, open AIs and the families of models that have come out there as generative AI with chat GPT, with DALI, you know, really categories that are able to reframe the way in which we access knowledge with text prompts that, you know, really give you the overview of the flow of knowledge and work that you need to then build your creativity and do your work at a pace that was unprecedented or text prompts that really lead to images that, you know, from from design to uh, people that have to create the future of maybe synthetic organs or that have to think about imaging and, uh, you know, all sorts of scientific design and uh, simulation of molecules from textile to protein folding. All of those large-scale foundational models are the ones that will create the next generation of innovation in science. And self-supervision of models in domain-specific capabilities is a key to the future. I give you an example. Mm-hmm. You know, if you think about biomedical literature, uh, large-scale self-supervised domain-specific models like PubMed BERT, which we have published, are now downloading as open source are downloaded, you know, as the standard, you know, 180 times a month from all around the world to think about how to query biomedical literature in a self-supervised way, 10 times opportunity to increase productivity. So, When you think about that, the impact at scale is generative AI that goes into the workflow that we do and into all the products and the tools, digital tools that are being used and also help as a platform. So think about a model as a platform, help developers do what they do best. For example, they could help developer initiator and, you know, write code, which seems counterintuitive, but that is really where we see the future going. So I'm super excited, actually, when I think about the application in chemistry, protein folding, the work that we've done on Rosetta Fold with the uh, David Baker Institute and and lab in the University of Washington. Uh, It's a multiplier for scientific discovery and for the opportunity to save lives with AI in medicine. 
What a great ending, Elena. And I have to say, I was literally waiting for uh, this podcast um, to happen because when we last met together on stage in Brussels at a healthcare event, I already at that time liked very much your concreteness and your passion that you bring into healthcare. Um, so with that said, I know that uh, your calendar is super busy. And uh, given that, um, wholeheartedly big thanks from my end that you took the time and share your perspectives on many elements around healthcare, be it sustainability, be it women leadership um, more broadly, but also in healthcare, but also when it comes to what you can do when it comes to technology and data and how you use that to the benefit of the healthcare of the future. So with that said, all the best to your mission to save lives with data and technology. Thank you very much. It is our mission and I'm so grateful for those that are in the journey with us and also to you and your organization for being such great partners. Thank you. Thank you very much. So thanks very much for listening, everyone. I very much hope you liked also the concreteness and Elena's passion to change healthcare to the better. And after today, we spoke about data and technology. I'll have the pleasure next time to speak to a startup founder. And he and his company actually take that kind of data to personalize to the very patient needs. And they do that via 3D printing of drugs, which also is a big hope for small scale drug manufacturing. Having said that, very much looking forward to that next episode. But until then, thanks for tuning in and stay safe. Strategy and strategy made real.